0: I mean, so far this year, Earth has registered its hottest month on record. Maui's experienced 115 fatalities at the hands of extreme wildfire. Europe's largest wildfire engulfed Greece, and data from the 2023 Canadian wildfire season shows that the carbon emissions are more than double the entire previous cumulative annual record for the entire country. And those fires have blanketed five times the land compared with an average over the past 10 years. If we look inside of California so far this year, all state and state farm have pulled out of offering insurance in the state because of wildfire risk. And the UN estimates that extreme wildfires are estimated to rise 14% by 2030.
1: Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akun, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury, and I've also invested in 300-plus companies.
2: I'm Raj Suri. I'm the co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. And today we're talking about wildfires with Max Brody, who is the co-founder and CEO of RAIN. RAIN is pioneering a new type of technology to stamp out wildfires almost as soon as they start, with autonomous vehicles being sent to a site and extinguishing those fires. Very interesting technology that is tackling a problem that's just getting worse and worse. Max himself has a very interesting personal story in connection to this problem. Emma, hey, what did you
1: enjoy about this conversation? Max has just gone really deep on wildfire tech. He obviously understands his problem very deeply, but also, you know, the broader context of what's happening and other companies kind of going after this. It was just nice to go deep on this topic that affects so many people, you know I live in San Francisco those yeah everyone knows that 2020 uh, fire that turned the whole sky orange so it's just good to like see people taking these problems seriously and like applying technology to try to help solve them absolutely
2: working on hard technologies to solve huge problems is exactly what Max is doing and it was really interesting to hear his incredible knowledge about not just like the technologies that are being used today but also wildfire, the politics of wildfires, and also just about like vegetation models. Like I didn't expect to be, you know, learning about vegetation models today and how those affect wildfires, but that, it was really interesting to learn. Yeah. So with that, uh, let's welcome Max.
0: Welcome to the show, Max. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Max. How have you been? I've been well. It's been a bit of a trying time over the past month in the world of wildfire, certainly with Lahaina and Hawaii, but personally for myself, my hometown, which that was 20 years ago, did not escape the Canadian wildfire season. And so 19 years, 364 days after the fire that inspired rain, massive firestorm is still burning through Kelowna, British Columbia. 35,000 evacuations, 189 homes have been lost. So thankfully, no loss of life. But it's just one of those things where we started the company to solve that problem. I just wish you know we were a couple years down the road and we could bring the tech back to where it all started. Did your actual childhood home burn down? So in neither the original fire or in this new fire, did my home burn down. Very thankfully, it's an extraordinarily traumatizing thing as a kid. You know, I remember standing on the roof with my dad, you know, nailing a soaker hose down you know, to the cedar roof so that for the weeks that we were away, you know if any embers happened to you know fly through that there'd be a less a smaller chance of it igniting our home.
1: How long ago was this? the fire that was like in your childhood?
0: literally nineteen years three hundred and sixty four days before this one started on August sixteenth You thought to yourself that day like I should try to build a company to solve
1: this, or that came a lot later
0: so ever since that time, the question was always okay, what would it take to stop this fire when it was a single tree? Because that was the story, right? That's what we heard. It was this fire began with a lightning strike on a single tree. It was reported at 4 a.m., but nobody was able to get to it until after the sun rose and the winds picked up. And by then it was too late. You know, within a few days, the army was called in. And so that origin story of that fire, you know, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old or whatever it was, is like, well why couldn't we get to it when it was a single tree you know what would that take just like the questions of kids right and yeah the answer turns out to be that it's possible but it's hard especially because winds drive fires to grow very very fast and so it's always been at the back of my mind building startups since then and after selling my last startup we got into a space of okay what's going to be the next thing and being now in California experiencing year after year of extreme and catastrophic fires, it's like, well, I've seen this story play out. This is not just a one time thing. You know, I saw this twenty years ago. What can we do?
2: Maybe step back a little bit. I mean, where do you think the state of wildfire tech is today? It seems like wildfires are getting worse. It seems like very clear that wildfires are getting worse, but where do you feel like the overall tech is to to help actually like is any tech doing anything to stop wildfires today? Or is it all still the old-fashioned you know firefighters and helicopters being used today?
0: Well, there's a fantastic amount of activity and energy going into the emerging space of wildfire technology. We've been building rain since two thousand and nineteen, and so we've kind of grown up with this new emerging area of technology. And what's really encouraging is that we are starting to see fire agencies and fire professionals lean more into technology because ultimately that's what it's going to take in order to get stuff deployed and we've seen folks at local fire agencies state fire agencies and you know even now federal fire agencies starting to recognize that this is an inevitable future you know we are going to have rapid wildfire containment systems in the future and are asking questions about how does this integrate into standard procedures? What are the standard operating procedures? How does this integrate with dispatch? How does this integrate with what we do today? And so those are the types of conversations that we're having now and it's very encouraging. And there's a ton of federal momentum as well. Both the White House and Congress released policy guidance this year in 2023 that is encouraging or requiring fire agencies to develop plans to integrate autonomous aerial suppression into their operations. And so the White House report came out in February, and that was mirrored most recently in the FAA reauthorization bill that's currently before the Senate.
2: That's great. Are firefighters using anything new, or is there anything being used New today, or is it all kind of old fashioned? Is there any other technology you look at and say, Oh, that's been adopted? So, like, my technology also has a path to adoption? Because sometimes, you know, that's the way it works, right? You see uh, one technology find the happy path, and you're like, Okay, I'm going to do the same thing.
0: I'd say the technology or the wildfire technology that's been most broadly adopted to date is in the early detection and simulation areas. So Early wildfire detection, there's already over 1,100 early Firewatch cameras in the state of California with even more across the American West. These are cameras that are doing algorithmic smoke processing sometimes using machine learning to identify the approximate coordinates of ignitions, and that that gets relayed to dispatchers, which then assign resources to go investigate those ignitions. And so this happens today, and it's incredibly exciting because, of course, we're working to equip those dispatchers with the capability to then very, very rapidly respond to ignitions before they grow out of control with autonomy. So early wildfire detection is a vanguard, you know, there's companies that have been building in this space uh, for several years. Pano AI is one of them, you know, recently now raised an extension to their Series A adding 17 million dollars to an already multi10 million dollar financing round this year in this economy. So it's a uh, you know, the early wildfire detection, you know a few years ago was, well, is this going to be real? Is it not? Are we going to be able to detect fires fast? Well, that question is largely resolved now, and that, yes, we are going to be able to detect fires when they're small. And so the next question is what are we going to do about it?
1: Can you use satellites to detect it, or is cameras the only way to do it?
0: So there are several different ways of doing early detection. So the governor in July announced a memorandum of understanding to fund, in collaboration with the Environmental Defense Fund, a constellation of early wildfire detection satellites. So that is on the horizon, it's a big effort within the community to get global coverage of sub-minute early fire detection uh, from low Earth orbit. So, And then on the ground, in addition to cameras, smoke detection sensors, which are essentially literally just smoke detectors for the forest, are currently being trialed by Cal Fire in their test forest. So, lightning detection is an old technology been around since the 1970s now we have the software that can better predict which lightning strikes are going to turn into ignitions so a massive amount of effort being put into early detection
1: what are the steps from like the lightning strikes all the way to i guess rain swooping in and solving the problem and like what are those pieces that you think are built and what are pieces that like you still have to kind of deploy
0: So the end-to-end picture looks like this. The early detection sensor, whether that's a camera, whether that's lightning detection, whether that in the future is a satellite-based detection or an IOT smoke sensor that's distributed throughout a forest says, okay, we think there's something Around here, and that's about the resolution that we're going to get from an early detection sensor. You know it could be we think there's something in this you know, one square kilometer, or we think that there's something you know in this you know half a square kilometer. And that information gets transmitted to the dispatcher. And then the dispatcher will be able to approve a response from a nearby rain equipped helicopter. and that aircraft will then, within three, four, five, six minutes, be, at the site of the general ignition coordinates and use its onboard infrared thermal sensors to localize exactly where the fire is in order to develop a plan to suppress it. And so that plan looks like, okay, should I be putting down fire suppressant ahead of the right advancing flank and then use, say, the remaining 40% to put out hotspots that are popping up ahead of that fire front? Or should I use my entire payload to put down a right and left flank because I know that three minutes behind me, there's another 1,000 gallons of suppressant that can come and put out the hotspots that are starting to grow. And so it's this fascinating real-time optimization problem to make best use of the available resources.
1: Is this helicopter connected to humans via the internet? And is the human making this decision? Or are you actually trying to put like enough intelligence in the helicopter to detect the situation and make its own kind of autonomous decision?
0: It's a drone, right? Yes. Uh, So it is a autonomous aircraft, so large payload, which is required for the types of ignitions that tend to get away. The types of ignitions that tend to get away are ignitions that are driven by 30, 40, 50 mile per hour winds, uh, which grow extremely fast, which require thousands of gallons of suppressant in the first couple of minutes. And so we are building enough intelligence onto the aircraft to be able to make the decisions around okay where should the fire suppressant go and in what order and ultimately this is because that enables scale you know when you're remotely piloting a single aircraft if you just take the pilot out of the aircraft and put them on the ground now they can manage say one aircraft responding to a single ignition, but adding that autonomy enables them to shift into a supervisory mode where now that single operator on the ground can oversee two, three, five, 10, 15 aircraft in the future.
1: And for now it's an autonomous helicopter, right? Like that's the kind of mode of autonomy. Mm -hmm. It looks like, and you were saying earlier that you initially started with like a quadcopter, and that's the picture behind Mm -hmm. you. So tell us like, you know, how you ended up with the helicopter mode and do you see it changing over time? Is helicopter just like the thing that you're using right now? Or do you think that's the long-term kind of mode of dispensing with this?
0: Yes. So we knew even when we started with the small drone back in 2019, that suppressing ignitions in high wind conditions was going to require substantial payload and we used the smaller platforms to develop the initial technology in order to move towards these larger platforms you know whether it's a small aircraft carrying 20 pounds of fire suppressant or whether it's a 1000 pound aircraft carrying you know 3 to 400 pounds worth of fire suppressant the technical challenges are similar and can transition to larger platforms and so The trajectory has been we did early detection and rapid response with a 55-pound drone. Then in 2022, we moved on to a 1,000-pound max takeoff weight small helicopter, which is what you see on our website today. And then we began in 2022 as well to integrate our software with much larger autonomous aircraft like what you see on our website as well. We've moved to these larger platforms in order to bring the rapid suppression capability to high and extreme wind driven ignitions, which the reality is, is the vast majority of ignitions that get away are driven by these high winds. Now, in the future, I'm very confident we will support a variety of aircraft types that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, We're very excited about everything that's happening in the eVTOL market. But the reality is, is that the energy density of batteries is insufficient to carry the massive amounts of payload that's required to contain an ignition that's being driven by those 30, 40, 50 mile per hour winds. But that will improve and will be ready to integrate at that time.
2: Where are you on this technology? Like, you know, Is it lab scale, pilot scale, production scale? Where, where exactly is it?
0: So we've demonstrated the technology in Halfman Bay, uh, which is our testing facility in 2022. And then we're looking forward to demonstrating the technology with uh, fire agency partners coming up in 2024. should be an exciting year. When we look at the technology stack, we are focused on adapting existing civil and military autonomous aircraft with the intelligence to perceive, understand, and suppress fire. So we take existing, matured aircraft autonomy systems and then add the intelligence to make them useful for rapidly responding to these ignitions. And so when we look at the history of autonomous aircraft, they've benefited from decades of investment by the Department of Defense to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars to mature those platforms. And now we are building that application layer that's specific to making these autonomous aircraft useful for rapidly identifying and suppressing wildfire ignitions. So more to come, but it should be an exciting year ahead.
2: I just want to learn more about this Half Moon Bay test you did. So what was the test? How was the structure? What was the success criteria? And what
0: did you do and what was still left to do? So the Half Moon Bay test was taking our Mosquito aircraft, uh, which was running an aircraft autonomy system that we integrated with, and dispatching that aircraft to a suspected ignition, where once it approached the ignition, then proceeded to suppress that ignition with its onboard compressed air foam system. And so the tests have largely remained the same since, you know, 2019, but doing so with larger aircraft. And so in 2019, the test was early detection, rapid response with the 55-pound drone. In 2022, the test was early detection and rapid response with a 1,000-pound max takeoff weight helicopter. And then coming up will be that same format, early detection, rapid response. And then the roadmap ahead, looks like expanding the conditions in which we demonstrate these tests, different vegetation types instead of grasses, and moving on to brush, timber, and then doing so in ever-increasing winds and more difficult environmental conditions. And so that's where we go from here.
1: When do you expect to be deployed
0: in a space? So deployment is in partnership with fire professionals and fire agencies. And so the technology is not so much the restricting factor as it is answering the operational questions around integration. You know, how do these aircraft behave in coordination with other aircraft? Who has the authority to dispatch? And so those are the types of questions that you know, we're working through. in integration into existing fire agency procedures can move at the speed that the fire agencies are comfortable with deploying these systems. And so that could be late 2024 or it could be 2025. We're looking forward to working with the fire agencies to you know, answer these questions as soon as possible so that we can get the systems into the world. So there
1: isn't like a technical limitation right now it's just a case of kind of proving it out more and deploying it when I guess the agency is ready.
0: Yes and so of course there's expanding capabilities on every single one of the domains like you know there's expanding capabilities and in, in perception and suppression but there is nothing that immediately prevents us from beginning a training and familiarization program you know with fire agencies to help them become comfortable with the technology and understand the technology in order to develop those standard operating procedures that's that's really the next step and that's the thing that actually helps get the technology into the world asap you know in parallel to working through that familiarization program you know, the competencies will continue to evolve and get better and That's what we do in partnership with uh, our customers rather than in isolation.
1: How many of these kind of helicopter platforms would you need to cover an area, let's say, like northern California?
0: We begin by answering that question based on the physics of fire growth. So we, we look at the factors that drive how quickly fires spread. Factors like the topography, the dead fuel moisture, the expected wind speeds, the vegetation type. And then model out, OK, if a fire were to start in any one of these locations, you know, how quickly would an aircraft need to respond? And then working backwards from that, that answers the question, OK, where should those aircraft be prepositioned or stationed in order to get there fast enough? So if we take an aircraft like the Black Hawk, which carries a thousand gallons of suppressant, the coverage to, say, protect Northern California is on the order of dozens of these aircraft. And the technology can support dynamically uh, pre-positioning these aircraft in the future. And so it, that means that if the wildfire risk is low, you don't need a bunch of aircraft hanging out in the corner of the state in that area. But on the order of dozens to 50 aircraft would be pre-positioned or forward deployed.
1: Got it. And do you expect to like own the aircraft yourself? Is Rain gonna own fifty of these Black Hawks, or is the idea that these fire departments own them?
0: So we do not intend to own the aircraft. We are providing a technology that enables these aircraft to be prepositioned and remotely commanded to respond to ignitions before they grow out of control. So we are happy to. Bring in partners to operate the aircraft if fire agencies want to be totally hands off and just contract for this service. But our engagement with the customer is a, a software subscription on a per aircraft basis. I just did a quick
1: search. I'm sure you have better data, but apparently a Black Hawk costs between 15 and 40 million. So 50 of these would not be that expensive, right? Like, have you thought about the ROI for kind of these fire agencies to do this? Oh, absolutely.
0: I mean, California spends billions of dollars every single year on direct suppression costs, uh, which is really a drop in the bucket compared to the total costs and losses attributable to wildfire, which across the entire United States is $348 billion annualized according to the U.S. Department of Commerce. So the ROI for getting to fires quickly and stopping when they're small is very, very obvious, You know, multi-hundred X ROI. And it gets even better when the new Blackhawks are not required to be deployed. The Department of Defense has fielded thousands of these aircraft and and very often transfers these aircraft to fire agencies so that agencies don't actually have to acquire them directly from the manufacturer. And that autonomy can be completely retrofitted to these aircraft as well.
1: They're already being used by fire departments just without this kind of autonomous layer.
0: Absolutely. So California's fire agency, CAL FIRE, has deployed 12 Black Hawk or Firehawk helicopters, which is the name they get when they are upgraded with you know, a tank, and has four more on order. And it's a very, very popular platform with fire agencies across the entire country, in part because the Department of Defense has so many of them. And, you know, frequently makes their excess aircraft available to other forms of government and then also sells off their excess aircraft to contractors.
1: And these Blackhawks have like full autonomy already baked in. Like you guys aren't innovating on the autonomy of like these helicopters, right? That's already baked in.
0: Correct. We do not take care of the platform-level problems like auto takeoff, auto land, identifying emergency landing zones, sensing and avoiding other aircraft. It doesn't really matter whether you're carrying cargo, doing a medevac mission, carrying people, or suppressing wildfires. Those platform-level competencies need to be handled regardless, and so we leave that to the baseline platform that we build on top of. Not all Blackhawks come with this autonomy built in, uh, far from it. This is a very advanced upgrade package that has mostly been you know, coming out of the Department of Defense and has been tested and funded by the Department of Defense over the past decade. So. In some ways, like,
1: you know, this technology is already kind of exists, like someone's working on detection, we have these autonomous helicopters that are already owned by the fire departments, and uh, you're kind of stringing it all together and giving another, want to have these network of these deployed and have all the kind of intelligence for like detecting the fire and like solving the actual fire issues.
0: Absolutely. There's a lot of surface area in you know, this problem space. We are very focused on enabling these autonomous aircraft to be useful for responding to and rapidly suppressing fires, and then you know, bring in the other partners to go and ultimately deploy the end-to-end solution.
2: What do you think the timeline is on this technology being widespread? When do you think like this type of um, this vision becomes a reality? What timescale are we thinking about?
0: Yeah, so our uh, ambitious objective is to protect the extreme and high fire threat areas in the state of California by 2030. That is obviously an aggressive timeline, but it's urgency befitting the situation. So fundamentally, you know, this Technology can move at the speed that you know, fire agencies and government are willing to adapt and take advantage of, of new technology. And so it's a significant emphasis uh, of our team is, is helping bring about that future faster by doing everything we can to educate left, right, up, down the government about the capabilities that this technology can bring to help solve the wildfire crisis.
2: Do you think the main bottleneck is just like the political will or like having government buy technology
0: or is it the technology itself? I'd say the primary barrier is educating the government on the capabilities of the technology and integrating the technology into how things are done today. Standing up a training and familiarization program is a key objective for RAIN to help make that very visceral you know i can show you videos of autonomous helicopters completing you know complex missions that is technology that's been funded through darpa and the department of defense not to be cliche but you know the future has already arrived it's just not evenly distributed yet it's not you know, broadly recognized and so to help accelerate the adoption of this technology you know, we need to get the technology in the hands of fire agencies and fire professionals so that they can start to use it and start to trust it. And you know, when we're, we're talking about this kind of technology, obviously that's something that we need to partner with fire agencies to do. We can't just go out there and do it by ourselves or nor would we want to. We need to work with them to bring the technology into the fold.
2: So Max, it seems crazy to me that governments aren't just like rushing towards adopting this and trying everything they can to like accelerate the rate at which we can fight these fires and, you know, just given the fact that the fires themselves seem to be getting worse and worse every year. And so I find it hard to believe that like, you know, 2030 is like when the first time we can kind of like start seeing these at scale. Do you think it's a matter of like working with certain governments or certain places that are maybe faster to move? Maybe some smaller governments. Like I was just talking to somebody. He lives in Whitehorse in, in the Yukon. The Whitehorse had a big fire too. Said so the Yukon actually is very nimble government. They're smaller and they can actually adopt things much faster. And uh, I was just wondering, like getting that first case study with this technology is going to be so important, right? And you, probably the state of California, my guess, is not going to be the fastest to move. It's probably the biggest state in the, in the U.S. I'm just you know thinking as a tech, as an entrepreneur now. You know, like trying to find the lowest friction path to getting that uh, first customer. I'm sure you've thought about it, so what sort of techniques have you, are you thinking about?
0: Yeah, it's a well-taken point. You know, finding the early adopters is actually how we filter everything we do. And so whenever we work with a fire agency, large or small, the first question we ask is, is this person that we're speaking to on the other side, are they an early adopter? Are they a visionary? Can they see the future. Because, you know, as a startup, we have very limited time and resources, and we have to work with the people who also see the future. Of course, you know, we're engaging with the large fire agencies. We have to, certainly because, you know, their timescales are prolonged. But the first fire agencies that we have been working with more closely are the county-level fire agencies. And, Yeah, the counties are often where innovation happens first, precisely for the reasons that you described, Raj. They're more nimble. You know, they have less stakeholders in decision making. And in the year ahead, you can look to see projects with county governments and RAIN, which we're very excited about.
1: Are fires actually getting worse? Like, that's like our anecdotal feeling living in California. Like, it seems like there's more smoke and more often. What is the actual stats?
0: I mean, so far this year, Earth has registered its hottest month on record. Um, Maui's experienced 115 fatalities at the hands of extreme wildfire. Europe's largest wildfire engulfed Greece, and data from the 2023 Canadian wildfire season shows that the carbon emissions are more than double the entire previous cumulative annual record for the entire country. And those fires have blanketed... Five times the land compared with an average over the past 10 years. If we look inside of California, so far this year, all state and state farm have pulled out of offering insurance in the state because of wildfire risk. And the UN estimates that extreme wildfires are estimated to rise 14% by 2030. So the anecdotes find companion in the data. So We are dealing with an unprecedented increase in frequency and severity of extreme wildfire.
1: What other technology is there? There's obviously, we talked about detection. Obviously, you're working on like quick response and suppression. Is there other kind of categories of technologies that are going to help with these fires?
0: Oh, absolutely. So it's an entire ecosystem of technologies that are growing up over the past couple of years. And in addition to early detection, which there is a ton of work being done in early detection that we've already discussed, technologies to support scaling prescribed fire is another key area. So essentially, not all fire is bad. We need good fire in the ecosystem. Fire is natural. And part of the challenge that's contributing to these extreme wildfires, is the fact that when we move into the wildland area and suddenly our homes are at risk, it becomes much more difficult to put good fire on the ground. And so we haven't been putting a lot of good fire on the ground.
1: What makes a fire good?
0: Principally low intensity and managed. And so for centuries, Native Americans have been burning the land in order to thin the forests, essentially decrease the density of vegetation. And this means that instead of when fires happen unintentionally, instead of having a massive amount of fuel and understory, all of the branches that fall off and create a massive fuel bed for fires to burn at higher intensity, instead, the ground is dirt instead of fuel. The distance between trees is greater. And so fires spread at lower intensity and are easier to manage. And so... We need to get back to a posture of introducing a good fire in the landscape, but that's very challenging when there's communities and homes you know, in the wildland urban interface. So some technologies to support this, uh, one of them is a company called BurnBot. They are essentially building an upside down incinerator on wheels. Also, you can think of it like a lawnmower for prescribed fires. It is a robot that goes around just like a, you know, a lawnmower back and forth over grasses and light brush and all the burning happens inside of the chamber so as it moves across the landscape the vegetation is burned and then the smoke is filtered on the way out and no fire escapes the chamber and so that's one tool that's being applied towards introducing more good fire in the landscape
1: any other technologies so detection suppression good fires anything else
0: A huge amount of work has been done in simulation, uh, better understanding and predicting where fires are going to start, how fast they're going to grow to inform decisions like where should fire trucks be staged or prepositioned today. And then, of course, insurers are asking the same questions about what homes should we be willing to offer insurance to or not. And utilities are also looking at the same simulations trying to figure out, okay, where is our assets most at risk of fire, and also where are our assets most likely to cause an unintended fire? And so the simulation work has been fantastic over the past, three to four years. If we look at this through the insurance angle, essentially what happened was wildfire was not considered a primary peril before 2018. So a primary peril is something like an earthquake, a flood, a hurricane. Wildfire was considered a secondary peril prior to 2018. And that's something like, oh, what's the probability of your water tank going? Or what's the probability of a car driving into the front of your house off the street? And all of those models were upended after the 2018 campfire. And over the past few years, the industry has been applying the very latest artificial intelligence and machine learning tech to better understand how fires are going to spread, where they're going to spread. And that's been applied across the entire industry now, not just in insurance. Although I suppose that the insurers didn't really like what they saw with the better models when they decided to pull out of the state this year, at least all state and State Farm.
2: Yeah, heard about that. Is this a global problem? Is this affecting, you know, I've seen the fires in Greece, which areas seem to be most affected? Obviously, the West Coast of North America has been affected greatly. But also, it sounds like East Coast this year was also affected greatly. Again, probably due to like very wooded areas in Canada, it sounds like. But which other areas around the world are most susceptible to this?
0: Well, I'll start at the high level, which is that according to data from the United Nations on the impact of carbon emissions attributable to wildfire, wildfire will cost the global economy $3.6 trillion by 2050. And if we look at global carbon emissions today, 18% of the global fossil fuel CO2 emissions were generated by wildfire with data coming out of the EU's Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Project. So the thing about wildfire is that it transcends boundaries. The smoke from Canada is impacting Eastern United States, has traveled over to Europe when the 2020 fires in Australia, which were absolutely catastrophic. The smoke from that traveled the entire world over several times. And so the long tail impacts of wildfire, it doesn't really matter where the fires start. It's a global issue, both in carbon emissions and air quality. If we look at regions that are particularly prone to wildfire outside of the United States, certainly Canada, Australia, the Mediterranean, South America, parts of South America, Chile, are all hotspots for extreme fire activity. But really, when I look at this, it's less about where the so-called problem areas are today, but what areas are going to be impacted tomorrow. A lot of people this year have told me that I never expected Canada to be a high risk of wildfire. Isn't it cold in Canada? Well, yes and no, right? Like these places are extremely cold, but also extremely hot in the summer. And there's a lot of forest and fuels to burn. So just one crazy thing about Canada, you know, some of these fires are expected to not go out. They enter into the understory and into areas where there's peat on the ground and are anticipated to just burn indefinitely. We're in a time here where extreme fires are popping up in places that you know, people don't anticipate and that the long-tail consequences of these fires are not fully recognized.
1: I mean, there was these huge fires in Siberia as well, right? Yeah. Which we would normally not consider as like the fireplace. Yes. It's almost like a positive
2: feedback loop for climate change. Like Basically, the hotter it gets, the more fires you have. The more fires you have, the more carbon dioxide you emitted. And then the hotter it gets. Is that the right way to understand this?
0: Yes, Wildfire is a climate flywheel. It is both impacted by climate change and a cause of climate change. We're undergoing a broad rewriting of our relationship with forests at the moment, which were previously considered to be a carbon sink, a reliable carbon sink. You'd buy carbon credits to plant forests in order to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But I mean, there's just staggering data that shows that, especially looking at the situation in Canada, that this is no longer the case. I can send you a graph afterwards that just kind of puts that into perspective.
2: Very interesting. And then once an area is like burned, like, you know, much of California has had fires recently. Is there some respite for that particular area? Like it's been burned, like, so it won't be
0: burned for another 20, 30 years or something again, or it won't go on fire again? It really depends on the vegetation model. So, for things like timber, that can be the case. Certainly, in my hometown, it's been you know, about 20 years since you know, fire came through. In many places, however, vegetation like chaparral, which is you know this you know, fast-growing bush that's tightly interwoven and interconnected, that stuff—if you burn it down—it's going to be back to where it was within a couple of years and just as much of a threat for transmitting fire across that particular landscape. So the short answer is it depends.
1: Is it that we're like kind of technologists and we think, hey, technology can solve this problem? Or like, do you genuinely think that with you know, smart use of technology, this could be at least a, maybe not solved, but like a managed problem for humanity?
0: As a technologist, technology is a tool. And I think it's an extraordinarily powerful tool. But ultimately, it's people that solve problems, and we need to do the work to help the people become comfortable with, with the technology. I would not say that you know, the rain technology in isolation is going to solve the entire problem. No. But rain technology in concert with other technology and in concert with forest management practices that we know are sound, like putting good fire on the landscape, I think That could end up solving the problem.
1: Maybe a little bit of a tangent, but as a Californian, you always hear PG&E blamed for every fire. At least that's my impression. I'm like, you know, goddamn PG&E, not one more fire. And they also got blamed because they caused blackouts in order to avoid fires. Like how much of it is PG&E's fault or is it just climate change and PG&E is like an easy scapegoat?
0: I'd say that broadly as a society, we're not very well prepared for the impacts of climate change. It, wildfire is the vanguard. It's the first visible, massive, scaled impact of a warming climate, and it, but it won't be the last. And so there's a bunch of difficult questions that need to be asked around who is responsible for climate adaptation, who's responsible for paying for climate adaptation. I know a lot of folks at PG&E, and, you know, they're, doing their very, very best to deal with a a difficult situation, which, sure, there's stuff they could have done better over the past several decades relating to maintenance. It's a very, very difficult thing to be responsible for all of climate change and global warming within your service territory. And so, as usual, I mean, the answer to this question is, is more complex than, you know, the media typically likes to paint. And there's a lot of hurt on all sides. But I think that it would do well for all of us to require of our government to ask and solve the difficult questions about how are we going to adapt and live with the changing climate and who's going to pay for it.
2: That's just the way it works, right? Like humans like wait for like the consequence of something to happen before they start um, doing something about it. And of course we'll do something wrong for the first few times and then we'll we'll start to adapt. Do you see other analogies in, like, you know, major natural changes that we're faced as, a, as a species, and having to adapt to that? I'm, I'm just trying to think of what are the other major analogies like this that there might be. It's kind of hard to think of it right now because it's like, or maybe it's a very unique thing. It's like a first big change that we're seeing that we actually have the technology to go and combat.
0: It's a fascinating question. I, I'd say the scale is likely unprecedented, but Throughout recent history, if we look at the last 100 years, as a global community, as a species, we have demonstrated an ability to adapt our environment to solve difficult problems. Like We are located in Alameda, California. Substantial portions of this island were created. They were created out of the bay. And if we look back into the 1950s and 60s, People back then, scientists back then, were contemplating technologies that you know, could, at a global scale, reduce the luminosity of the sun to help prevent global warming, at least as they saw it, but also to help manage the climate to better support you know, growing crops. And so I think on the technology versus other problems spectrum, I think we're very, very capable of adapting and applying technology to these problems. The much harder thing is, how does the entire world agree on technology by floating nanoparticles into the upper atmosphere to adjust the weather? Who gets to control that? Or should we do that? Should we just let nature be nature? To what extent do we take an active role in managing the climate with these technologies? Like Those are, in my opinion, the more difficult things.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you bring up those good examples. And I was thinking about it too. I mean, I think, you know, industrializing countries have had to deal with the consequences of their own actions in these feedback loops where they're like, okay, there's, they're creating water pollution or, or air pollution and the water pollution like poisons people and the air pollution causes acid rain or something like that and causes smog and things that are not desirable. And they've had to change, like, you know, change how... Cars emit, you know, particulate or in China, they actually like ban cars. Like you can only drive your car on every other day in China. So like people do make this very stark adaptations to their behavior. There's like a time cycle, right? So once the consequence is real, it probably takes on the order of a couple decades to like fully adapt to that. So it's probably what we're, we're seeing right now with wildfires. The consequence, as you said, since 2018, so it's only five years, and now the global community is going to have to adapt to it in a big way. Technology is going to be a solution and behavior change is going to be a solution and political will is going to have to be there too. So it's like a combination of things. It's kind of exciting to see how we react. Is there any other application of, you know, when you think of the advancement of AI and robotics, do you foresee any other changes which are not being used today, but could happen in the next decade that would make a dent in these types of climate problems? You mentioned the luminosity
0: of the sun. I mean, things like that, like kind of more out there ideas. At the end of the day, at least within our field, it's all about response time and getting to ignitions as fast as possible. We have technology to build extraordinarily fast ways of transporting mass from point A to point B you know, rockets, missile technology. And so instead of helicopters or aircraft, if you equipped something resembling a rocket with a payload of fire suppressant and you combine that with extremely early detection that was then had extremely fast confirmation, that payload could be delivered very, very fast. Now that would require the entire public getting comfortable with the idea of essentially domestic projectiles that are being fielded in order to stop an ignition when it's, you know, 10 feet instead of letting it grow to maybe an acre by the time the autonomous helicopter gets there. But these are things that are, again, not outside the realm of technical possibility. It's more an issue of what the public and the government is going to deem as acceptable or comfortable. So we joke that, you know, that's something that if we fast forward 50 years, you know, that could be the eventual end for a technology like RAIN is, you know, extraordinarily early detection and hypersonic rapid response. But if we look at the tools that we have. The tools that we have are so incredible. And so much of my everyday life is trying to bring these incredible tools that are so broadly deployed in other spaces and help build trust and confidence in these tools within communities that don't assume them or take them for granted the way that technologists do.
2: Yeah, the domestic missile sounds very interesting. I I almost wonder if it's it's almost like... um... Part of it is a sales job to the public, you know, and getting the public aligned behind some of these things. You know, the public sometimes has irrational fears of things like like nuclear technology and things like that, right? This could be the same, but it could also be sold very well. There is also a clear pro case to do this. Do you think a little bit about that, like marketing to the public to get like public buy-in?
0: Yeah. You now, from the very earliest days, we have been super convicted that taking this technology on a roadshow and building the grassroots public support for the technology is an expeditious path to deploying the technology in the real world. Essentially running a campaign of sorts, executing a political campaign to a similar degree of expertise that a candidate might do, because it is a public issue. And the way that public issues get brought to the forefront in this country is always door to door, going on the trail. And so we look forward to making the technology more visible to the public. But, you know, of course, we we are a startup. And, you know, to do that, we cannot incur the costs alone. We have to bring along and bring in signal, you know, from the customers to do this. So,
1: How many helicopters would it take, or helicopter platforms would it take to cover Maui? Like, Maui is quite a small place, right? Like, would it be two?
0: We haven't run the modeling yet for Maui, but it's on our to-do list. And when we do run the modeling, I expect it would be more than two. And I expect that it would be less than 20 to be able to reliably end the threat of catastrophic wildfire on the island.
1: It feels like California is hard, (laughs) but Maui seems like very achievable. And obviously I'm guessing like the people of Maui slash Hawaii are like pretty motivated right now. So maybe that would be like a good place to, and that's all, obviously, I think, because of what Maui is and people's minds, it's like a very iconic place. So that would be really strong marketing-wise.
0: And it's a smaller government too. Imad, my next investor update is going to go out in the next 48 hours or so. And one of the asks is introductions to innovators within the government in Hawaii. So we're there. It's just uh, you need to find the right people in order to, introduce it
1: this is a great chat max really appreciate you taking the time your inspiration and in the work you're doing and i think the audience will love to hear about this and kind of the technology going out there to fight fires so thanks for joining
0: yeah everyone should be cheering for your success it's going to help everyone out thanks imad thanks rush it's been uh, fantastic to share just a little bit about what we've been building and you know the road ahead For rain. It should be an exciting next year um, as we start to bring the early detection rapid response technology more visibly into the world.
2: So Ahmad, um, that was really interesting. I guess you've known him for a while and I wasn't aware this technology was actually like even being
1: tested right now. Seems pretty far along. Yeah, I actually met him at a VC event and I like had this really long chat kind of similar to the chat we just had. I was like, wow, this is sick. And you know i'm a big believer in technology solving these like kind of humanitarian problems and it felt like i mean obviously he has a ton to do to actually get it get it live in 2030 sadly feels like far away mm-hmm. but it's just so cool to see someone working on it
2: these are the problems that technologists when they work on it they feel very gratified because they're solving just a massive problem for humanity And so you can tell he's very motivated because of his personal story. The passion is going to be there. The drive is going to be there. And he has the background to make it happen. It sounds like the biggest challenge is going to be just selling to government. I mean, like, you know, you and I, we would cringe just going through that process. But, you know, he has the the long-term vision and and the passion to maybe break through these barriers.
1: Yeah. One thing that makes it a little easier is that, you know, there's these thankfully, especially in America, I mean, I find it sometimes annoying, but the government is so decentralized, right? Like you have cities, you have counties, you have states, then you have, so yeah, yeah, there's enough pieces of early adopters that can build it up. But yeah, he is selling to a government and that's always going to be much slower than kind of going to businesses or consumers. The technology itself, you know, it seems doable, but it also seems
2: hard, right? Like you're sending these autonomous vehicles to a site within just like five minutes. It's like the best fire truck ever. And then you have to detect it. I guess the detection happens through these cameras. Is that right?
1: Yes, they're detecting just the area, right? He said one kilometer squared. When this helicopter gets there, they do have to do the detection and then come up with the response in real time, I guess, on site. I think without the autonomous technology that's built into these Blackhawks, without that, there would be just no way a startup could do it. With that, at least like... You know, they're kind of outsourcing the initial detection and the autonomy of the aircraft. So, yeah, the problem, it's still complicated, but it's not like a unsolvable problem, right? It's just an engineering yeah. challenge.
2: Yeah, and they're not actually investing in these helicopters either, right? So that helps. It's not a capital-heavy model. They're focused on the
1: software. One thing that's interesting about these, like, very big climate change problems is that you know, there's such a tragedy of the commons in place, right? Like if it was just a localized area where you got fires and you just had to deal with that fire, like the incentives would be just so high because like there's so much money at play. But you have these like massive areas where they have like consequences across states and across countries. It's just, it's very hard to just get organized enough to go like, oh, we have $10 billion worth of problem. Let's spend $1 billion to solve it.
2: Yeah. I really do look at this in in terms of early adopters and late adopters. Like the early adopters will be the most motivated. They'll prove it out. And then they'll have a case study for the mainstream and the late adopters. I've seen this in other areas where we have like traditional customers. It always works like that. And eventually it'll become a standard. The same as the way the actual fire trucks are the standard today. I'm sure that wasn't the case back, you know, 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago. And then one day it became the standard, right? Fire hydrants were probably like some major technology advance (laughs) at the time. So, yeah, that was a really interesting conversation, getting really deep into the wildfire side. And I learned a lot about just how wildfire is affecting the world. So, yeah, really enjoyed that one. Same, man.